This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. 60 years of hormonal birth control to me shows a startling lack of imagination in terms of innovation and science and med- like it's it's 2018 like you know we have self-driving cars why are we still using some I'll say barbaric type of contraception that was invented in the late 1950s Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, today we're going to focus on women's health and pose the question, what do periods have to do with longevity? We're going to talk about ovulation, naturopathic medicine and the role of hormones in health span. My guest is Lara Bryden, a naturopathic doctor from Sydney in Australia, where she currently practices at the Sensible Alternative Hormone Clinic. Lara lives in Christchurch in New Zealand, and we're talking today in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Lara, to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. You obviously enjoy traveling. I do. Well, yes, I travel. I live in New Zealand, but I'm from Canada and I work in Australia. I was going to say, you practice in Sydney. (laughs) Yeah. How do you manage that? I I fly there. I commute there four times a year for two weeks. And then I just do an intensive time in in my consulting rooms with my patients. And I I like it. It's a way to reconnect with my patients. And that informs the rest of my work, the writing that I do for the rest of my work. And so obviously the, the, the remainder of the time you can consult remotely using technology. Yes, I do a few Skype consults with my existing patients. So let's talk about your qualification, naturopathic doctor. Can you explain what that is? So we received four years of postgraduate training. So I have a science degree prior to doing that. And then we're trained to use nutrition, herbal medicine, nutritional supplements in the context of a you know, kind of similar to a, a general practice, helping patients with different conditions. There, I think there are at the moment five or six colleges, accredited colleges in North America for training naturopathic doctors. And I trained in the, the Toronto College, the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. What's your science degree in? It's in evolutionary biology and ecology. Interesting. From University of Calgary. And that wasn't the direction that you wanted to pursue. I, and I asked that question because I did something similar. Yeah. I, I studied biology many years ago, and then you get older and you have different ideas and different ambitions, and yeah. you head off into a different direction. I seriously thought about a career in academia, in um, research, and I actually published a, a peer-reviewed a, a, a paper in a peer-reviewed journal on um, sex differences in foraging behavior of bats. And I love that work, and and the field work was the best part, but it's I'll tell you, Peter, it's a lot of work to be an academic. And at the end of the day, I just didn't know if I could you know, commit to that. So I started by posing the question and your expertise is in and you've written extensively about ovulation, about periods. And I pose the question, what do periods have to do with longevity? And what is the significance for women of their periods if you're looking at their life as a whole? It's not so much the period if we think of a period as just a bleed. I mean, to me, a bleed the bleed part of a period is just 
a necessary downstream effect of something far more important, which is ovulation and the making of women's hormones. And so I'm quite passionate about this. Um, as a scientist, you know, I can see that women's reproductive hormones, steroid hormones, obviously are an important part of how our body functions. And yet they've been left out of the conversation for some reason. Our current approach to women's health is to either at best not think about women's hormones very much or at worst treat them as a liability and use drugs to intervene or hormonal birth control to shut down women's hormones. And I'm just afraid that's going to have a, a, a large impact on women's health long term in terms of longevity. And so what is it more specifically about that process, about that cycle that is underappreciated? The value of the hormones themselves, let's contrast it with men. So men make testosterone every day in a nice little diurnal cycle, which is, you know, quite quite predictable, quite easy to anticipate. And obviously, no one doubts that testosterone is important for men's health. What's different about women's hormones is that we make them in a monthly cycle. But that doesn't mean they're any less important. We make them with ovulation. So we make the bulk of our hormones in the middle of our monthly cycle. And that's important for general health, even if, you know, whether we're trying for a baby or not. One question I sort of pose is, would you ever say to a man, look, you don't need testosterone unless you're trying for a baby? So in terms of women, as they go through their lives, uh, what aspect of, of these cycles is it that they are perhaps not paying enough attention to as they grow older and in a way that could perhaps affect their, their health span? I think, well, I mean, to be honest, the majority of women, what, at least, I think three out of five women use hormonal birth control routinely to shut that all down. That is a kind of castration. So, I mean, that's the conversation I'm trying to start is what cost do we as women pay when we, we give up those hormones to the drugs? Essentially, you're saying trying to reverse the natural journey of the body. Yeah, ignoring you know a part of the body, a part of physiology that is quite integral to long-term health. And what are the implications of that? We don't know. I mean, there's been so very little research into this, into the long-term benefits of estrogen and progesterone. We do know there's been some recent research that estrogen helps to prevent the brain from Alzheimer's and dementia which makes sense because estrogen is very important for brain function. Estrogen also communicates with, talks to our, what are called mitochondria. You must talk a little bit about mitochondria in your Quite podcast. Yeah, They're important. hugely important for, for longevity. I would actually think any conversation about anti-aging has to be primarily about mitochondria. And our primary energy source. Yeah, and so here's the thing about mitochondria and sex steroids. Sex steroids, so including testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone, boost mitochondria, speak to the mitochondria. And in turn, mitochondria are what makes our that our steroid hormones. That's where they're made. So it can become kind of a feed-forward cycle once the hormones start to go down or the mitochondria start to go down. That can worsen. And I think there's some theories of aging where that's you know one of the main factors. Both estrogen and progesterone also help to support immune function. And the other factor in aging, long-term aging, is immune senescence. I'm sure you've talked about that in your podcast as well. We have quite yes. a lot. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You recently wrote an open letter to, yes. just to quote the yes. intro, every clinician, personal trainer and blogger who offers health advice without thinking about periods. This goes yeah. to the heart of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. Can you just explain 
first of all, the motivation behind that and what you're yeah. saying. The title of that blog post is, If You're Not Thinking About Ovulation, You're Not Thinking About Health. It's sparked primarily by what I see amongst my patient population and my readers as well, who have followed, I'll say, a, a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet or used fasting based on advice from mostly male bloggers and health gurus and then find that it, they feel pretty good for a few months and then four or five months into that they lose their periods and they stop ovulating. And that's important. I guess that the purpose of my blog post was to try to bring that into the light to make everyone, men and women, you know, pay attention to how, how women are different in that regard, how we do require some carbohydrates. I think more carbohydrate than men. I'll say that. For one thing, think of it this way. Our estrogen gives us a superpower in terms of our ability to tolerate and get away with more carbohydrate than men. So already, you know, we that's one argument for not going as low carb as men. And also we need a certain amount of carbohydrate, particularly starch, to be able to ovulate. And so I'm speaking women during our reproductive decades, so during the you know, 20 to 50-year-old decades. That's an important time to be ovulating regularly and making those hormones, which I think about, I speak about as deposits into the long-term bank account of health, kind of building metabolic reserve with each monthly dose of estrogen and progesterone. And then, of course, the argument, you know, one question that always comes up at this point is, well, our ancestors didn't have as many periods. They didn't have as many monthly cycles. No, that's true. But they had pregnancies, which deliver a huge dose of those hormones, reproductive hormones, particularly progesterone. And so they were doing it in a, a different way. But I think either way, we can't get away from the fact that our body is calibrated. Our immune system, our mitochondria, everything is kind of calibrated or expecting to have those hormonal messages. And in terms of those cycles that you refer to, to what extent does modern day life interfere? The external cycles that we impose on ourselves or women impose on themselves, yeah. the, the stresses, the yeah. travel, or even the, the social media, the constantly being on, does that interfere? Yes. Well, stress interferes. The great thing about periods or about ovulatory cycles is what I'll, I'll call them, is they are a great barometer of health. I call them, I refer to them as our monthly report card. So I actually, in that same blog post that you referred to, I make the statement that I, and this is quite genuine, <laughs> hand on heart, I, I, you know, I feel kind of sorry for men that you don't have periods, that you don't get to have this nice little barometer to check in. Certainly when I'm work, working with my patients, one of my first questions, regardless of what problem they've come to me for, I'll say, and what are your periods like? Because that gives me a window into what their health is like. And are women able to answer that question? Have, have they thought about it well, in enough depth to tell you something? Okay, well, here's the question I often, the answer I often get, which is quite sad. It's, you know, well, my periods are fine because I take the pill. You know, and Peter, those, I'll just really want to make this point to your listeners that pill bleeds are not periods. Pill bleeds are not ovulatory cycles. The the artificial withdrawal bleeding that you get from the drugs of hormonal birth control have nothing to do whatsoever with what we're talking about today because those drugs are not estrogen and progesterone. They're different molecules and they don't have the same benefits in terms of long-term health. And it is your suggestion that women should come off all forms of hormonal birth control? It's my suggestion that women should understand what hormonal birth control is, that it's a form of 
not to be too blunt, but I'll just say it's a, it's castration. It induces a kind of chemical menopause in you know young women, 20, 30-year-old women, and then replaces those valuable hormones with a substandard pseudo-hormone, hormone replacement, steroid drugs. And I mean, I just, to me, it's one of these kind of elephant in the room. I just, I can't believe not everyone is talking about this. You know, it feels huge to me in terms of long-term health and optimal health for and, anyone. And yeah. so what are the implications for long-term health, especially in terms of symptoms? What, in your view, are those women likely to experience when they are 50 or, or maybe 70 as a result of behavior in a younger life? Yeah, we don't know. I, the science isn't there. I mean, it's just those drugs have not been around long enough. Certainly we have women now probably in their 60s, 60s, maybe 70s, who took hormonal birth control when they were younger, but not to the extent that they are now. I mean, when the pill first came out in the 60s, women might take it for a few years in their you know, 20s or 30s, but they weren't being put on it at 14 or 15 like they are now and routinely put on it for skin or to regulate cycles. This is an experiment in women's health. We have no idea. But if we don't know, we also don't know that necessarily the effects long-term are going to be negative. No, we don't know that. And I'm hopeful. I mean, of course, I, I like to be optimistic that it's not going to be as bad as I think. You know, there are some worrying things, which is there was a, a, um, a huge Danish study that came out at the end of 2016, which was able to correlate hormonal birth control with anxiety and depression, which... You know, for any of us who work with women, that was not a surprise because that's just what we see. And we know at least some of that effect is coming from a direct effect on the brain. For example, there was a, a researcher here at UCLA, Nicole Peterson, who found that women on the pill, compared to women who cycle naturally, have altered brain structures. And she doesn't know why exactly or the mechanism, but if you think about that, having an altered brain structure in your 20s and 30s, and I don't know what that's going to mean for long-term health. We know that women on the pill have altered immune function. They have a greater vulnerability to autoimmune disease. And what is that going to turn into in terms of longevity? Because we've just agreed that immune function and immune senescence is a key part of longevity. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. So when you pose that question, how are your periods? And you yes. hear the answer you don't want to hear. Yeah. What is the answer you would like to hear? I would like to hear that the women that they're cycling regularly. It doesn't have to be like clockwork. It doesn't have to be a 28-day cycle. But if it's between 21 to 35-day cycles, that suggests to me quite strongly that my patient is ovulating regularly. And that's what I care about. And if she's not... You know, it's quite common to not be ovulating regularly, then straight away my next question is why not? So I'm looking at is it stress? That's a, that's a reasonably common reason. Is it undereating, which is a hugely common reason, becoming more and more popular, more popular, more and more common? Undereating, undereating carbs, fasting, inappropriately losing their periods. So that's probably the next most common reason. And the third one, which we really need to bring into this conversation, is 
something called PCOS, which relates to an underlying problem called insulin resistance, which I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast, because insulin resistance or prediabetes shortens lifespan. It's a big, it's an epidemic, which I'm, I'm sure you realize. And mm. the way that manifests in women is they stop ovulating and they get PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is really just defined as not ovulating and having excess male hormones, which is sort of part of what happens under the in, under the influence of insulin resistance. So when that's straight away, that's an early warning sign, right? Like the woman tells me I only have four periods a year. I know probably none of those are ovulatory cycles. I think then I know to look for, to test for insulin resistance. And then we can have a conversation about sugar and reversing insulin resistance and preventing cardiovascular disease and preventing all the long-term downstream effects from insulin resistance. So there are many, many different warning signs, in your view, that can come out of that answer to that very simple yeah. question. Yeah. Why, why are you not ovulating? There's, there's many different reasons. It could be thyroid, for example. You mentioned, and it, I pricked my ears up at the uh, phrase, uh, fasting inappropriately. Yes. D- d- can you elaborate on that? Because we've, fasting is something we've talked about an awful lot on, on yeah. this podcast and, and the potential benefits of, yeah. of a, a controlled fasting, not, not fasting for very long periods of yeah. time with no food and only water. We, we've gone into a lot of detail of the different fasting regimes. But as it applies to this issue, your speciality, yeah. what, what do you think? Okay, short answer. I've always been a fan of some kind of intermittent fasting. I remember writing about it in my blog, you know, 10 years ago or more. More recently, I've really needed to try to fine-tune that a bit for women. So first of all, if a woman has insulin resistance or PCOS, then I think she's going to more likely benefit from some method of fasting to help to reverse the insulin resistance. If she doesn't have insulin resistance, then she needs to be careful. You know, I think fasting can very quickly lead to undereating, especially if it's a woman has a history of an eating disorder. And so my litmus test is, again, that's the barometer of can you do it and keep ovulating? You know, if a patient tells me I've, this is the fasting regime I'm doing, I feel well in every other regard, I say, are you still getting your periods? Yes. Even if it's six months into it or 12 months into it, then I'm okay with it. I think there's gentle ways to do it. My preferred method for some women might be more of the kind of eight-hour eating window or very gently, you know, maybe a later breakfast a couple days a week or something. I'm not opposed to that. I think with regard to fasting, though, I think it is very important for hormonally, I'll say especially for women, but maybe for men as well, to do have some protein in the morning. That gives a signal to circadian rhythm, which has just really come onto my radar fairly recently. You can actually use it to try to recover from jet lag, which is what I'm trying to do right now, flying in from New Zealand last night, is time you know, when I'm having protein and try to re- convince my body that this is the time schedule I'm on now. Well, we did an entire episode on the circadian rhythm with Dr. Felice Gush, who I know yeah. you know. Yeah, I know. You know she's yeah. based here in California. Yeah. So we've gone into that in some depth. Great. And, uh, I think, and we do have some understanding of its, of its huge significance. Um, I'm curious, hormonal birth control, just coming back to that, yeah. what, is your, what do you say to women who want to come off it and maybe acknowledge some of the issues? It's not easy, is it? Or is it? It can, it, can, it can be easy. 
you know, I think we hear horror stories about women trying to come off and their skin breaks out or they don't start ovulating and their period pain comes back and there's different ways it can go. But for many women, the story is they, this is the story I hear from my patients. They stop it, the injection or the pill or the implant or whatever it is. And within a few weeks, they say to me, it was like a fog lifted. You know, I got myself back. I got my brain back, my mood lifted almost straight away. I stopped getting yeast infections. You know, my got my microbiome started behaving better. So the, it can be quite easy in that regard. You know, it can be, if there are going to be problems, it's because of the problems that were always there and just masked by the pills. So with my own patients, I, if they want to come off the pill, I will say, okay, what? tell me, what were your periods like before you took it? And I mean your real periods. I don't mean your pill bleeds. And that's going to give us some clue of what we can expect. And another thing I'd like to say about this, if a woman started the pill at like 13 or 14 years old, which is not unusual these days, and is trying to come off it at 35, there's a real likelihood she's not going to be able to establish ovulatory cycles very easily. And I'll tell you why this, my mentor and hero named Professor Geraldine Pryor from Canada. She explained this to me. It was just a, it was a, a you know just one of those life-changing moments for me that she claims it takes 12 years for women to mature our ovarian communication with the pituitary. So that cycling takes 12 years to mature. So if we get our period at 13, it's not until we're 25 that we're really doing it. You know, we're ovulating every month. We're making progesterone. We're, we're doing it. And so then I asked her, you know, what happens if you give a 13 or 14-year-old the pill and you should literally shut that all down? She's like, well, it's going to, that maturation process is going to have to start again, start over when, when you come off. And if, it, that, if that's at 35, that means... It, you know, it's a pretty strong ask to think that your ovaries and your pituitary are just going to jump straight back into action. And particularly if at 35 you're suddenly just w- wanting to have a baby, that's why you've come off. Yeah, you're going to end up on fertility medication potentially, which uh, is worrying. Yeah, I imagine the first question that many women will ask if they're coming off the pill is, what is the alternative? That's the question I ask them. And if, if they're th- with my readers and in my book and with my patients e- in every situation, I do want to check in with them. It's like, how are you planning to prevent pregnancy if you want to avoid pregnancy? Because, of course, you can't just say stop the pill and you're on your own. And Because they're taking it for a reason. Of course. No. So I think women, I think contraception, safe and easy and accessible contraception is important for every woman. There are lots of options, and I'll, I'll list through them in a minute. But let me just say, you know, I, one of the things I've said is that 60 years of hormonal birth control, to me, shows a startling lack of imagination in terms of innovation and science. and med- Like, it's, it's 2018. Like, you know, we have self-driving cars. Why are we still using some, I'll say, barbaric type of contraception that was invented in ni- the late 1950s? Like, it's just, to me, I mean, to have... To avoid pregnancy, to have to shut down a woman's hormone, entire hormonal system to avoid pregnancy, it doesn't make sense. And there are newer inventions coming. There's one I'll mention for men that's coming, which just going to ask yeah. about that. Yes. So there's something called Vasal Gel. They're a nonprofit. They're trying to bring to market a rever- It's essentially like a reversible vasectomy for men, but it's a it's a one time injection of gel into the vas deferens. 
and then a second injection when a man wants to have children. To me, that's a game changer. If we could get something like that, you know, that's just going to change the whole conversation about birth control. And I know with that product, here's the crazy thing, no pharmaceutical companies want to pick it up. Nobody will pick it up to run it through the clinical trials. They've had to crowdsource that to try to get that to market. So I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that that comes very soon to and, take some of the burden off women. And how much do we know about the safety of that? Well, they're term? investigating that, obviously. We need, we need to know that that's safe, of course. And there are, um, there's hormonal birth control on the horizon for men. But I'll be honest with you, I don't see how why men should have to take that. Like, to me, that's, that's exactly the same, you know, to semi-castrate men to avoid pregnancy is does not jive with me either. Well, I was going to say, if it's potentially damaging for women, exactly. surely men yeah, I don't, very different systems and processes going on, but it's still the same principle. I don't want it? to shut down men's testosterone to avoid pregnancy. So what we have at the moment is, you know, we have condoms, which I do think are great. <laughs> I, you know, a lot of my young patients seem to think that's not an option, but I don't see why. There's some newer condoms on the market, some condoms that fit. In my book, I talk about, I refer to, I think they're called one condoms. They've got 60 different sizes, which seems kind of obvious to me now. Um, there's fertility awareness method for women. Because here's the thing, men are fertile every day. As women, we're fertile only six days per cycle. And it really is not rocket science to figure out when those six days are and then to identify them and then to either abstain or use a barrier method on those days. And so women have been doing that, you know, for quite a few decades just with their own thermometers and calculations and little graphs. But there's some products now that help you do that. I'll, I'll mention one by name because I'm a huge fan. I don't have any investment in it, but it's it's called Daisy. It's a little contraceptive device thermometer. A woman just takes her temperature every morning and then it gives a red, green, or yellow light. And if it's green, that means there's almost no, no chance of pregnancy on those days. And they claim, they've done some clinical trials, it's 99.4% effective, which is really as good as the pill. You mentioned earlier, just towards the start of the interview, male blog writers yeah. as opposed to female writers. Yeah. Is there a, an issue there? Would you like to see more women qualified professionals stepping forward and being public about this issue? Yeah. Well, I think the more women bloggers, you know, the better, because obviously it's on our radar as something that matters. I'd also like to bring it onto men's radar, though, as well, that really to think about their audience when they're making blanket statements about what works for health, they're really just speaking about what works for men's health. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's just, that, and it's not just, it's not their fault as an individual. This is where we're at at society because up until the mid-90s, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it was not, nobody had to include women in any kind of research trial, whether it was nutritional research or for new medications. It was only mandated like less, you know, just a little over 20 years ago that women even be included. So up until fairly recently, human health was kind of synonymous with men's health. And, you know, men were treated as the standard normal version of human and that women were, you know, different in terms of when they want to have a baby, but that's about it. But I'm trying to flip the whole script on that. A presentation I give is called, you know, women are not small men. And I start with the thought experiment. It's like, let's just imagine that the standard normal version of a human is female and take that as our starting mm. place. You clearly understand this in great depth. What do you 
apply to yourself and your own life? And I'm thinking of your longevity. Yes. And as you get older, perhaps your aspirations and, and goals yourself, everything that you've learned, is there something in particular that you apply to yourself because yeah. you think it's going to be great in the long term? For longevity. Um, well, I avoid sugar in terms of it, the damaging effect of insulin resistance. So sugar has been off my menu for quite a few years. I do some gentle intermittent fasting, like I'll, mainly for me, because of the way my nervous system is, I can't fast for very long, but I will just, you know, have try to have a nice hit of protein in the morning and, and finish eating by about dinner time and that's it. The other thing for longevity that I think is important that is my personal challenge is sleep. I'm convinced that sleep is... How many times do I hear this? <laughs> yeah. Almost every guest, you get around yeah. to the subject of sleep and it's yeah. pretty much number one on the list of must-do things. Yeah, although I'm trying not to think of it as a, a to-do thing because that actually makes it harder for me to sleep. I'm trying to think of it as a let myself sleep or let go. You know, I th what I realize is I think I'm a little bit addicted to being awake. This is the way I've tried to change that. That for me is to let go of being awake all the time, being... You know, turned on or being sort of, yeah. Have you developed a, a sort of a morning routine or a late night routine to try to aid your sleep? I do. I think getting some morning light is important. I do. We get a cortisol spike in the morning. You probably know that. We get this if within the th first 30 minutes of waking. Our cortisol shoots way up and that's normal. But to attenuate that, I do try to have a little bit of a morning practice, whether it's a walk if I have time or just standing outside. In the sunlight. In the Preferably. sunlight. In the sunlight. I do morning. This is not longevity related specifically, but I do morning pages. I do like a little journal entry in the morning, which also I think helps me to settle down. And yeah, and in the evening, my biggest thing is to stop working by 8 or 8.30 at night and like turn off my everything. Turn off my notifications. Turn off all the devices, yeah. all the notifications. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I started by saying you must enjoy traveling. I don't know whether any of yeah. us really enjoy traveling, the, <laughs> the physical process of traveling these days. But how do you how do you cope with that in terms of the physicality of what it does to you? I mean, yeah. we're talking about cycles here. Our yeah. cycles, especially long distance travel sure. that you've been doing recently, are all over the place. Well, I referred to using protein and yeah, eating eating for jet lag. There's different techniques you can to try to get your body on track as much as possible. I take melatonin to get my try to get my sleep back, get that early morning sun. I don't. I mean, I do, I travel to those big overseas travels maybe only a couple times a year. I'm just traveling between New Zealand and Australia isn't too hard. No, your neighbors anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mentioned we talked about fasting. You say intermittent fasting. So are you talking maybe just for a few hours in a 24 hour period? Yeah, you know, I've used the phrase intermittent fasting, but as applies to myself, I just do the maybe the more constricted eating window. I, so the time restricted, yeah, sixteen eighties, yeah, exactly, something, something some like that. Do. Yeah, and for women specifically, well, the women. I mean, I know women because that's my patient population. If a woman has anxiety or you know sleeplessness or signs of that, what's called HPA axis dysregulation or a bit of adrenal axis dysregulation, then I'm very cautious with with fasting in terms of how severe to do that. I still, I like the timing of the protein in the morning. And here's what I observe with my patients. It's as they get healthier, as their nervous system improves and their adrenal axis improves and their insulin resistance, they they can fast more easily. So I think if, if especially if women say to me, oh, I could never, I can't go, you know, three hours without eating. 
I don't see that as a normal situation. And I'll say to them, look, I think once we get you a bit healthier, you'll find it's actually quite easy to go without eating. A healthy human being should really be able to go 24 hours without eating, without suffering any consequences from it. Yeah, I found that. It, it certainly gets easier. The, yeah. the, the more frequently you do it, you can go for a little longer the next time without the, let's say, the headaches that you get yeah. initially on, on fasting. That goes pretty quickly. Especially once you get rid of sugar. Back to sugar. I mean, I'm really in the camp where I think high-dose fructose is hands down probably the most damaging foods we can have. I'd say high-dose fructose, arguably alcohol, are up there in terms of damaging. I know alcohol has been kind of sold to us as a longevity producer, but I'm not convinced about well, that. Well, doesn't it depend on which study you read and which newspaper? Well, One day it's good and the next yeah, day but it isn't good. Peter, here's the thing we have to factor into what we were hearing about alcohol. And I feel a little duped by all of this because I've, yeah, in the past kind of thought, yeah, it makes sense. You've had a red wine, cardiovascular disease, why not? A lot of that was funded and promoted by the alcohol industry. And not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I really think they've worked pretty hard to normalize that for us. And I think, again, for women particularly, I think alcohol has some real problems. It's it's a known, it's, it's actually quite a huge risk factor for breast cancer. There was just an article in Mother Jones magazine a couple yeah. weeks ago about that, just talking about how that's been downplayed. You know, women are, in terms of breast cancer, they're thinking about just obscure things like, you know, soy or plastics. I mean, fair enough, those are all things. But, but meanwhile, most women don't seem to realize that even a moderate level of alcohol consumption pretty substantially increases the risk of breast cancer. It is an important point you make. We should always look at the fine print as to who has funded a study. And that doesn't necessarily mean that if it's funded by an organization related to the topic that there's something bad with the science. You've got to look at who's actually doing the research as well. But you've got to take into all of these factors. Yeah, for sure. How do we follow your work? My book is Period Repair Manual. That's easy to find on Amazon. And my blog is larabryden.com and all my social media handles are Lara Bryden. I'm easy to find. I will put all of those details in the show notes for this episode. You'll find that on our website. That's lamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can also, of course, follow us in social media at Lama Podcast. I'll be tweeting about this episode. We'll have it on Facebook as well. Lara Bryden, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. And many thanks to you for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Peter Bowes, or you can email me. The address is peter at llamapodcast.com. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.